It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Thursday, June 25, 2020. On today's episode, TV and movie librarian Stephen Tomlinson is here with Let's Talk Movies. Today's topic is Frankie Goes to the Movies, Sinatra at the Movies. Following that, we have an encore presentation of the future of movie theaters. And finally, we have another episode of Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess. On this date in history, June 25, 1951, it was the first color TV broadcast from CBS on the Arthur Godfrey program from New York City, and it uh, was broadcast out to four cities in color, 1951. In 1993, the final episode of Late Night with David Letterman aired on NBC. Letterman hosted the Late Night program from February 1, 1982 until June 25, 1993. In all, there was 1,819 episodes of Late Night. By comparison, Letterman did uh, well over 4,000 episodes on CBS. Now, interestingly, the Late Night program was produced by Johnny Carson's production company. Carson had a clause uh, in his contract that gave him control of whatever show came on NBC immediately after The Tonight Show. Now, Carson's uh, production company wanted Late Night with David Letterman to have as little overlap uh, with his show as possible. In fact, most of the ground rules and the restrictions on what Letterman could do, uh, it didn't come from the network, but it came from Carson's production company itself. So for instance, Letterman couldn't have a sidekick like Ed McMahon. Paul Schaefer's band could not include a horn section like Doc Severinsen's did on The Tonight Show. Letterman was also told that he couldn't book old school showbiz guests like Jimmy Stewart or George Burns or Buddy Hackett. And Letterman wasn't allowed to replicate any of Carson's signature pieces like Stump the Band or uh, Karnak the Magnificent. And perhaps most importantly, Carson wanted Letterman to minimize the number of topical jokes in his opening monologue, which could help explain why Letterman's monologues were very different from Carson's. Listen to this um, speech given by Tina Fey um, when David Letterman was inducted into the Kennedy Center Honors. Tina Fey talks about uh, when she went to college and she saw firsthand the influence of Letterman on a whole generation of boys and young men. Listen to this. By the time I left for college, Late Night had cemented its place as the epicenter of culture for anybody who wasn't a dope. Every single boy I went to college with was basically doing a 24-hour-a-day David Letterman impression. They would, whenever possible, use old-timey phrases like program and goof and, for the love of God, folks, don't try this at home. And it really worked to make me like them. That is This Day in History. And now here is Stephen Tomlinson talking about the chairman of the board, Frank Sinatra. Frankie goes to Hollywood. Sinatra at the movies. Frank Sinatra's biography seems tailor-made for dramatic representation. After all, his life was on public display for more than 50 years. First came the meteoric rise in the late 1930s and early 40s, the adoring screaming fans, the marriage to a neighborhood sweetheart, success in every medium, riding high, then the downturn, his loss of popularity, loss of voice, and loss of public approval, especially when his affair with Ava Gardner became fodder for the tabloids. And then, when he had just about been given up for dead, the great comeback, when he got the role of Maggio in From Here to Eternity, 
with the help of Ava's lobbying, followed by the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, then a new record contract, the unofficial but very real title of Chairman of the Board, the Rat Pack, the metaphorical ownership of Las Vegas, the involvement with various mob figures, the involvement with the Kennedys, the feud with the Kennedys, or at least with Bobby, the marriage to Mia Farrow, his son's kidnapping, the divorce from Mia Farrow, fistfights with reporters, the transformation into a Republican, and a final big hit in New York, New York. It's more than any soap opera could contain, and it all played out in front of a voracious public. While Sinatra was an extraordinarily creative force in popular music, his film career is often considered an afterthought. Yet, on screen, his cultural significance is still quite high. He made his film debut in 1941, performing in an uncredited sequence in Las Vegas Nights, singing I'll Never Smile Again, with Tommy Dorsey's Pied Pipers, a highlight of this relatively little-known film. In 1943, he had a cameo role along with Duke Ellington and Count Basie in Charles Barton's Reveille with Beverly, making a brief appearance singing Night and Day. The following year, he was given leading roles in Higher and Higher and Step Lively for RKO Pictures. But like his roles in later MGM musicals of the decade, that Sinatra was often limited to playing implausibly naive characters, while both studios attempted to suppress the potent sexuality that Sinatra had harnessed as a singer to induce hysteria among his teenage fan base. So in the early 1940s, the studios didn't really know what to do with him as an actor, or even try to channel the powerful melancholy that is in so much a part of his best music. In 1945, before he had yet had a significant film career, Sinatra made a very interesting short film, only about 10 minutes, and one called The House I Live In. In this short film, he plays himself taking a smoke break during a recording session while he sees a large group of boys chasing another boy, then intervenes to save that boy, who it turns out is Jewish. Sinatra's message then to the chasing boys is that all Americans are one, and all religions are to be respected equally. It's really quite fascinating to see this, because of course he's not a great film star at this, at this period of his career, but still very well known as a singer. Ironically, though, a decade later, during the McCarthy era, that film's liberal slant would get him tagged by some as a communist sympathizer. But I suspect one of the reasons is that the film was written by screenwriter Albert Maltz, who was one of the Hollywood Ten. And while Sinatra never testified before Congress um, regarding the investigations into supposed communist influence in Hollywood, that did become fodder for his already growing FBI file. 
And you can see this short film. I highly recommend it. Uh, you can see at least an excerpt of it in the recent superb HBO documentary, Sinatra, All or Nothing. Sinatra, of course, could always be a complicated figure. Um, he kind of represents both an insider and an outsider, both in his music, but more obviously so in the roles he performed on screen. A little background. The United States was then, and remains today, of course, a mix of classes, races, and ethnicities, despite minorities and the poor being often relegated to the cultural sidelines. Sinatra himself, as a high-profile Italian-American from a working-class background, well embodied that outsider figure. The man not really at one with America's post-war suburban success story. And I think that that is key to understanding so many of his roles in later Hollywood films. His first major feature-length film success was with Gene Kelly in Anchors Away in 1945, which garnered several Academy Award wins and nominations, including for Best Original Song, I Fall in Love Too Easily, sung by Sinatra. But while military triumph and notions of male bravery were fresh on everyone's minds, Sinatra in the film plays a sailor on shore leave whose greatest fear is the opposite sex. Made in 1949, the similarly themed On the Town, perhaps Sinatra's best musical, though it is very much a Gene Kelly film, still, he more than holds his own um, as part of a trio of Navy sailors, including Kelly and Jules Munchen, who spends their 24-hour shore leave attempting to live it up in New York City. The, th the film was the third and last collaboration between Sinatra and Kelly and marked the beginning very quite significantly of a brief but steep downslide in Sinatra's career as MGM would drop him after this. But all was not lost. In 1949, Frank Sinatra fell in love with Ava Gardner, the world's most beautiful animal, quote unquote, according to the tabloids, who had supposedly seduced Frank as he was still married to his first wife, Nancy, and for this became a scandalous homewrecker. But of course, the real story is a lot more complicated. I'm going to quote heavily here from an interview that Ava Gardner did um, near the end of her life. I was with Mickey in the studio commissary, Mickey Rooney. We had just gotten married. Frank came over to our table. Jesus, he was like a god in those days, if gods can be sexy. A cocky god. He reeked of sex. He said something banal like, if I had seen you first, honey, I'd have married you myself. But I paid no attention to that. I knew he was married. He had a kid, for Christ's sake. Only days after his divorce from Nancy became final, however, Frank and Ava did get married on November 7th, 1951. A day that will live in infamy 
as described by Eva. It was too soon, but that was frank all over, she said. Plenty of people told me I was mad to marry him. Lana Turner had had an affair with him after she divorced Artie. I've been there, honey, she told me. Don't do it. But they did. He was 36, and she was 29 years old. This was at a time when Gardner's career was on the ascendancy, while Sinatra's was in, as I said, sharp decline, a certain recipe for disaster for the alpha male Frank. Resentful and jealous, he would often provoke fights that the feisty Ava seemed to tackle with pleasure. And the stories of Sinatra's mock suicides are well documented. Ava again. I got 140 grand for Showboat, even though the bastards finally dubbed my voice for the musical numbers, but I wasn't complaining, and it kept us afloat, in more ways than one. We were both drinking far too much. Geez, we were really knocking it back, and fighting all the time. The trouble was, Frank and I were too much alike. Bappy, Ava's sister Beatrice, said I was Frank and drag, and there was a lot of truth to that. He was the only husband I had that Bappy didn't approve of straight off the bat. I'm not saying she disliked him. On the contrary, she thought he was great. Just not for me. And I should have listened to her. But why didn't she? He was good in the feathers. You don't pay much attention to what other people tell you when a guy's good in the feathers. Frank and I had been married barely a couple of years. The marriage was obviously unraveling even then. I'm just surprised it lasted as long as it did. It was a bad time for Frank. Poor darling, he was so insecure. He was broke. He didn't have a job. He was hanging onto his place in Palm Springs by the skin of his teeth. It was the last real asset he had. If he'd lost that, it would have been the end of the line for him. He had made a lot of enemies in his good years, before the Bobby Soxers found somebody else to throw their attention at. Nobody wanted to be around him. There were no hangers-on. He didn't amuse them anymore. He couldn't lift a check. There was nobody but me. He had burned most of his bridges with the press. There was a catalog of disasters. His voice had gone. MGM had let him go. His agent had let him go. So had CBS. On top of all of that, the poor guy suffered a hemorrhage of his vocal cords and couldn't talk, let alone sing, for about six weeks. That's when I saw through those people. I saw through Hollywood. Naive little country girl that I was, I saw through all the phoniness, all the crap. You know, I think what made their passion so turbulent was how similar they both really were. Possessive, jealous, bad-tempered, and fascinated by food, drink, cigarettes, and sex. They hated to sleep or remain alone while they needed chaotic entertainment to fulfill their fear of boredom. It's been said that the two were soulmates, and they, they even remained friends after the split. Tina, Sinatra's daughter, once said, in Ava, Dad really had met his match. And I think that might be true. But when Ava left for Europe in 1954 to film The Barefoot Contessa, the marriage was clearly coming to an end, though the couple would not formally divorce until 1957. 
They had no children together, although there are rumors of an abortion in the early 1950s. Following Ava's death in 1990 at age 67, Frank described the loss as very painful. And prior to that, he had quietly helped to support her. So perhaps Frank and Ava really were soulmates. But more importantly regarding his career is that while Sinatra was accompanying Gardner to Africa for her film Magambo, he got wind of, of a projected movie of James Joyce's novel, From Here to Eternity. Sinatra had read the book and closely identified with the cocky little ill-fated Italian private Angelo Maggio. He told everyone who would listen, including Gardner herself, that if he could play that role, he would prove himself as an actor and get back on top. But of course, it was easier said than done. You know, for many years, there has been a myth circulating that Sinatra employed his mob connections to get the role of Maggio, basically threatening studio bosses and rival actors. But this is largely due to the Godfather movie in which fictional singer Johnny Fontaine, often thought to be based on Sinatra himself, goes to Don Corleone, Brando's character, of course, in the film, for help in persuading a movie producer to land him the role of a lifetime. And when Corleone makes the producer an, quote unquote, an offer he can't refuse by basically cutting off the head of his favorite racehorse and placing it in his bed, Fontaine gets the role. But as far as that all relates to Sinatra, it's total hogwash which Gardner confirmed. Frank was flat broke when we tied the knot. I don't know where those stories came from that the mafia was taking care of him. They should have been. But the effing so-called family was nowhere to be seen when he needed them. It really ticks me off when I read how generous the mob was when he was on the skids. I was the one paying the rent when he couldn't get arrested. I was the one making the pot boil, baby. It was me. According to Kitty Kelly, in my way, her rather robust biography of Sinatra, Gardner had interceded on her husband's behalf to help him get the role he so coveted uh, in From Here to Eternity, even calling the wife of Hollywood mogul Harry Cohn, the head of Columbia Studios, the studio behind the movie, and begging her to persuade him to let Sinatra test for it. Frank was at the bottom of the barrel, recalled Joan Cohn, and no one wanted him for anything, especially that role. I knew that he had been pleading with Harry for the part of Maggio, but Harry had completely dismissed him. He thought Frank was nothing but a washed-up song-and-dance man, a has-been crooner, quote-unquote. But so moved was Joan by Gardner's appeal that she promised to talk to her husband, Harry. Sinatra himself was convinced that he was the best man for the job. He said, I knew that if the picture was ever made, I was the only actor to play Private Maggio, the funny and sour Italian-American. I knew Maggio. I went to school with him. I was beaten up with him. I might have been Maggio, he once said. And Sinatra certainly never forgot that he was an Italian-American especially one from a poor background in Hoboken, New Jersey. 
at a time when other singers, Italian-American ones, had anglicized their names. He had not. That Sinatra so identified with the character, the character of Maggio, is key, I think, to understanding the performer. In his music, too, as there was not much difference between Sinatra the man and his art. Sinatra himself had bombarded Cohn and the film's director Fred Zinnemann with calls and messages. Zinnemann was unmoved. He wanted young stage actor Eli Wallach for the role and also ignored Sinatra's pleas. But after some further persuasion, Sinatra at least got a screen test, along with Wallach and a now mostly forgotten comedian named Harvey Lembeck. Lembeck went down in the first round, leaving Wallach in pole position for the role. But when Zinnemann looked at the test, the screen test in which Maggio strips off for his, his fatal fight with two brutal military policemen, it was clear, very clear, that Sinatra had one overriding advantage over Wallach. Wallach was tough and virile with a powerful physique, whereas Sinatra was famously skinny and looked undernourished, which made his act of defiance all the more pitiful and emotionally affecting. As a result, Sinatra got the role, and with coaching help from co-star Montgomery Cliff, gave a great performance that won him the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for 1953. It was the beginning of a great decade for Sinatra, the only blot on the landscape being his separation from Ava Gardner in the same year, after barely two years of marriage. You know, sometimes when you listen to Sinatra, it's like listening to the anguished ruminations of a friend, or like listening to your own thoughts as they flood your mind when you, you know, can't sleep at three o'clock in the morning or something. And I'm thinking of the great Sinatra song here, In the Wee Small Hours. Sinatra does not really sing about something like, say, a great vocalist like Ella Fitzgerald does. Rather, he, say, sings that something from the inside out, very subjectively, more like, say, Billie Holiday, and gives a performance that is, like hers, at once dramatically spectacular and wholly interior. Whether it's the early, achingly vulnerable voice telling you that I fall in love too easily, or the mature swinger who sings I've got you under my skin with absolutely no hint of vulnerability at all despite the song's message, or the world-weary I've been there and it hurts kind of guy who says to the bartender, one for my baby and one more for the road, or the rough-voiced career survivor who boasts that I did it my way, the emotion, feeling, and thought are all directly communicated to the listener. It's hard to imagine anyone else singing those songs. He makes them his own. And in so many of those songs, he is sad, sad that his love is gone, that his hopes have turned sour. And if you replay his great albums from later in the decade, um, ones like No One Cares and Only the Lonely, you can hear this melancholy quite clearly. Here's that rainy day, for example, in which there's a 
wistful slowness that comes close to taking over the singer. It's there in the very expressive album covers, too. A lonely Frank, brooding and not far from the lyric outcast. Sinatra, as a vocalist, found a new audience in the 50s and 60s, one made up of mature, urbane grown-ups for whom he epitomized the tempered passions, the insouciant cynicism and melancholic introspection of his greatest music. But did he ever achieve this level of artistry in his movies? No, he did not. But it is reflected there, especially in his choice of roles, roles that mirror aspects of his own personality in the mood of his more adult, sophisticated albums. Men coping with failure, disappointment, and frustration. You know, biographers say Sinatra had a thinly veiled air of aggression about him, and in his best film work, he is often dangerous, edgy, and very different. Stark and gritty, even by today's standards, director Otto Preminger's drama, The Man with the Golden Arm, was controversial in its day for dealing so directly with drug addiction. As a harrowing account of a man's struggle to stay clean, this movie is probably Sinatra's best dramatic performance of his career, for which he received another Oscar nomination, this time for Best Actor, but lost out to Ernest Borgnine in Marty. In films like The Man with the Golden Arm and From Here to Eternity, Sinatra plays that outsider in an America where, as one character in the former puts it, everybody's an habitual something. Perhaps because of the grittiness of these performances, filmmaker Elia Kazan almost cast Sinatra as Terry Malloy, the conscience-tormented protagonist of On the Waterfront, before deciding on Marlon Brando instead. Sinatra had certainly wanted the role, and was even from the same area where the film is set, Hoboken, New Jersey. To quote Kazan, I think Frank would have been wonderful but Brando seemed more vulnerable. There was more self-doubt, more schism, more pain in Brando. And that's what I wanted. With Frank, it's in there, but it's deep down and he's been able to cover it up too well. Think about it. Sinatra as Terry Malloy. It's really not such a far-fetched idea. His best film roles are those in which he plays the battered, troubled outsider, Whereas film historian David Thompson once put it, Sinatra glamorized the fatalistic outsider. He made his own anger intriguing. And in the late 50s especially, he was one of our darkest male icons. Quote unquote. I think the success of Sinatra's best work on screen lies in this ability to tap into his own complex character. According to biographers, he suffered from terrible mood swings in which he could switch from generosity and kindness to violent abuse in a moment, bewildering friends and enemies alike in doing so. Certainly one of those outsider roles is in Suddenly, made in 1954, in which Sinatra plays a would-be presidential assassin. It remains a little-known film today, 
which was hard to see for decades because, of course, its action foreshadows the assassination of JFK, and it was withdrawn from circulation for a long time, for that very reason, just as the Manchurian candidate was for similar reasons. And very interestingly, in his physical scrawniness, the Sinatra of 1954 in the movie Suddenly looks a little like the Lee Harvey Oswald that the world would come to know nine years later. But of course, Sinatra did not only make darker themed films in this period, which I happen to think are his his, his best movies. He also continued doing musicals and some comedies and the film adaptation of Guys and Dolls in which he is paired with Marlon Brando is a good example of this lighter fare. He and Brando though were diametric opposites. Marlon required multiple takes whereas Frank detested repeating himself. He was the one take wonder who learned his lines, hit his marks, hated rehearsals and retakes, and liked to knock off in time for the cocktail hour. What's more, Sinatra held a grudge regarding having missed out on on the waterfront and repeatedly referred to Brando as, and I quote, mumbles, and even dismissed his acting style as, and I quote again, that method crap. The 1954 Warner Brothers musical Young at Heart is also very interesting. For the first 30 minutes, it's packed with optimistic self-assurance as Doris Day and Gig Young court one another in an idyllic Connecticut setting. But the arrival of Sinatra's city-raised, working-class musical arranger with a name changed from something a little more Italian, quote-unquote, transforms the film, very interestingly, into something a little more unsettling. And once again, Sinatra plays an outsider. But these darker roles, they would become increasingly tempered by the later half of the decade. Intriguingly, and just think about this, Sinatra, like his contemporary Cary Grant, mostly seems out of place in anything on screen other than a contemporary urban setting, and one in which he is dressed almost always in a well-tailored suit. The occasional costume drama, like The Pride and the Prejudice from 1957, and even that very rare Western drama, I think his only one, Johnny Concho from 1956, are examples of what Sinatra could not do well, and in which he just seems terribly, terribly oddly out of place, far from the image we associate with him, the urban, well-dressed, sophisticate. It's not like, as a vocalist, Sinatra was unable to extend his range successfully, as his foray into bossa nova, for example, proved. But in film, this was much less the case. You know, for all its enormous popularity, high society from 1956 was a fairly atypical, uncomplicated role for Sinatra. Whereas even in a frothy musical like Pal Joey the following year, you can still see something of the charming ne'er-do-well who reveals a pervasive cynicism and even a degree of low self-esteem. And I suspect that's because Sinatra could never quite leave his working class persona behind. And it shines through in most of his films, even in lighter fare, 
like pal Joey. And it's there again in Some Came Running from 1959, in which he plays another outsider, in this case one distinctly tied to a war veteran's vulnerability. This was five years after his triumphant performance in From Here to Eternity, the other adaptation of a novel by James Jones. Now, Some Came Running is a very good film in which Sinatra convincingly conveys a fairly typical world weariness born of the veteran's experience. And when he says at one point in the film, I'm just tired of being lonely, that's all. As an audience, we believe it. That's Sinatra. But from this point onwards, that would mostly change. And Sinatra would, for the next several years, play slight variations on the Kennedy-era popular Sinatra persona of the swinging, uncomplicated Playboy, celebrated in such men's magazines as, well, Playboy itself, which once described him as, and I quote, Surely the hippest guy in the room. He cemented this reputation as a cool cat with Ocean's Eleven from 1960, a lighthearted caper movie in which he plays a character named Danny Ocean, a professional gambler who organizes his army buddies into a crew that attempts simultaneously to rob five Las Vegas casinos at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve. Ocean's Eleven remains a fun film, very stylish, if badly dated in its sexual politics. It's also a million miles away from the troubled characters that he had played only a few years earlier in From Here to Eternity and The Man from the, with the Golden Arm. Of course, Ocean's Eleven also features his so-called Rat Pack buddies, um, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Joey Bishop, and Peter Lawford with whom, throughout the early 60s, he would spend a lot of time having fun, both on Las Vegas stages and in a series of lightweight movies inspired by Ocean's Eleven. But rarely again would he ever play characters as real or gritty or as distinctly memorable as he had earlier. The one really good film that does stand out in this period is The Manchurian Candidate from 1962, It's a very far cry from the um, ring-a-ding-ding vibe of the Rat Pack. Instead, this is a tense political thriller fueled by Cold War fear and paranoia, in which Sinatra again stars as a returning vet, but this time from the Korean War, after having been held in captivity in North Korea. One member of his unit, played by Lawrence Harvey, returns a war hero, but almost from the start, there seems to be something wrong with both him and the other members of the unit. Plagued by nightmares, Sinatra's character comes to learn that he and they were brainwashed by the Chinese during their confinement and that Harvey has been turned into another would-be assassin of a presidential candidate. Now, Sinatra made several more films throughout the 60s, none as interesting Um, or as accomplished as The Manchurian Candidate. And I'm thinking of films like the um, straightforward World War II action film Von Ryan's Express in 1965, and a few detective films by the end of the decade like Tony Rome and The Lady in Cement. But crucially, the culture of the late 60s was rapidly changing, 
and times were beginning to pass him by. Those are not great films, but they are very close to Sinatra playing himself on screen. Not the troubled figure of the past, but rather more the witty, charming, strangely graceful one that the public conception of him had come to embrace. No longer the troubled outsider. And of course, as such, nobody takes it all very seriously, least of all Sinatra himself. In the 1970s, after turning down leading roles in what became two hugely successful vigilante cop series, Dirty Harry and Death Wish, Sinatra slipped into retirement for the first time before making his final starring feature in 1980 in the crime thriller, The First Deadly Sin. Sinatra's contribution to popular music remains extraordinary among the very greatest of the 20th century. But while his parallel career as a film star does not approach that zenith, it does remain considerable, leaving among it several wonderful performances in classic films worthy of watching again and again, even if he was rarely the perfectionist in front of the cameras that he was while in the recording studio. Still, when he put his mind to it, Sinatra could act with the best of them. Not altogether surprising, perhaps, given that his headstone reads, the best is yet to come. Thank you, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed my take on the film career of Frank Sinatra and that you will join me next week on Friday at this time for Lockdown Viewing, where I will provide some recommendations of movies to watch and where to watch them. Bye-bye for now. Hello, everyone. There's an old adage in Hollywood, the show must go on. But amidst our current pandemic, that may not always be the case. Not in movie theaters, for example. At least not yet. Welcome to Let's Talk Movies, a weekly program of movie talk here on the Code St. Luke telephone broadcast service. Talk that's sometimes historical and sometimes contemporary, like today the topic of which is our current pandemic and its relationship to the movies. Specifically, how COVID-19 has impacted upon the theatrical release of current and future Hollywood films. And most importantly, the impact of the pandemic on the very survival of movie theaters themselves. My name is Stephen Tomlinson, a librarian here at the Code St. Luke Public Library. And of course, like much of the rest of the world, our local movie theaters have now been closed for six weeks or more, with no indication as to when they might reopen. In truth, it might only be six weeks, but of course it feels a lot longer than that. Let's begin by posing a few questions. Movie theaters, will they reopen in the summer? Which of course is the traditional blockbuster season. Well, that's looking increasingly unlikely. Maybe they'll reopen in the fall. That's possible. But will audiences conditioned to social distancing feel safe to return without a vaccine? These are questions we just don't have definitive answers to yet. 
We do know that last year, 2019, was a very good year for the film industry. The global box office brought in over $40 billion worldwide. Disney alone made seven movies that each earned more than $1 billion globally. And one of those films, Avengers Endgame, broke Avatar's record as the highest grossing blockbuster of all time. But now, just four months into 2020, the film industry's year may already be over. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought Hollywood to a complete halt. Movie theaters, big and small, have closed around the world. Productions have stopped, and the release of some of the year's biggest films has been delayed. Now, since movie theaters are closed, the scheduled release of Hollywood films for the spring and summer period has mostly been pushed back to autumn and December, and even into next year, 2021. While other new Hollywood films that may have been in theaters when the pandemic hit have simply been released on streaming sites or made available through VOD. VOD meaning Video On Demand, which you can access by doing a search for their titles on Apple devices, Google Play, or through your cable provider. Two such films, Emma, the new Jane Austen adaptation, and The Invisible Man, a remake of the 1930s Universal Horror Classic, are both currently premium priced at $19.99 for a 48-hour rental, which is a standard price for a brand new high-profile film on streaming services. But you have to wonder who's going to pay that price when we have so many options elsewhere. Especially when you know that in two or three weeks, that price is probably going to drop to $6.99 or $5.99. So the smart consumer is going to think, I'll just wait, you know, two or three weeks when the price is lower and watch it then, right? And that's an important factor as to why Hollywood is sitting on or postponing their biggest releases until a safer time. They want a bigger bang for their buck, and that means a bigger bang in a theater, a theatrical release. But what constitutes a safer time for theaters to reopen? Three months? Six months? A year and a half? We don't know yet. So, with that context, let's explore what the studios might be thinking regarding their biggest upcoming new releases, and what that might mean for movie theaters in general. And let's do that through one example, the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die, which has been finished and under wraps for a few months now. It was scheduled to come out theatrically on April 10th, but about two months ago, the producers and the studios that financed them announced a new date, November 2020. It was the first big Hollywood film to postpone its release because of COVID-19. And at the time, many people were shocked and wondered if this wasn't an overreaction. But I don't think anyone is thinking that now. But how long will the people behind No Time to Die decide to wait if theaters are not open by November? Will they decide to bypass theaters altogether and release the film straight to the internet? I think that's possible, but with a quarter billion dollar budget, not including advertising, 
the new James Bond film really needs to make a big traditional theatrical release to make any money. An anticipated $1 billion kind of money. That's what the producers would be looking at. But likely, streaming revenues alone won't come close to doing that. So if theaters don't reopen this year, or even if they do, but audiences don't yet feel comfortable in going to them, the producers may have no choice but to stream No Time to Die as video on demand or perhaps through Netflix as two examples. And this is not only true of the new James Bond film, but also of big, anticipated, equally billion-dollar releases like uh, Mulan, Black Widow, and Wonder Woman 1984, which are also being held back from theatrical release until a later date. My own preference would be to see these movies uh, on an IMAX screen, certainly in a movie theater. But wait how long? That's quite literally the billion-dollar question. So the studios may have no choice but to release their biggest, most expensive films without traditional theatrical releases. But if this takes place, what then happens to the theater chains that would have shown these movies normally? These theater chains are currently dealing with rents that can't be paid. Will they be able to survive? And if they do survive, how will they reopen? Most likely not all at once, but rather in a staggered fashion, depending on government regulations in any given jurisdiction. And when they do reopen, will theaters be mandated to have socially distanced seating, meaning that every second or every second and third seat must be kept vacant? Almost certainly yes. So, movie theaters will reopen at some time, we just don't know when, but people may not flood back all at once. Or perhaps they will, feeling a pent-up need to get out of their homes. But even if they feel safe and have this pent-up need to get out, will people have the expendable income to do so in an economy where many are now out of work? Again, we just don't know, but the implications for movie theaters are not great. The implications are, however, very good for the big streaming services and internet content providers which are flourishing right now, um, such as Amazon, Apple, Disney, and Netflix, of course. Though, to be fair, Disney is having some problems because of their closed theme parks. And uh, why are these streaming services doing so well amid the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, it's because people are forced to stay at home and stream their content like never before. So yes, um, those companies are doing very well. But that's the danger for theaters, that as a captive audience at home, we are increasingly dependent upon them, increasingly conditioned to want and to expect their newest films, in addition to all the other forms of entertainment they supply, all instantly available through the internet, even if we have to pay for it. 
But the point is, theaters may no longer be necessary. Not when we can receive the newest movies directly on our smartphones, tablets, computers, and televisions. Now, an eventual decline in theatrical exhibition amid the rise of these streaming giants has been predicted for years. But it wasn't thought to happen so precipitously. So much so that many are even wondering about the continued viability of movie theaters on anything like the current scale after this pandemic is over. As I've said, movie theaters have all closed their doors and are right now running out of options. In fact, the AMC movie theater chain, one of the biggest in the United States, is widely thought to be on the verge of bankruptcy. So reports Variety. Having laid off much of its corporate staff, in addition to all of its on-site theater employees. One industry analyst in the United States has predicted that a quarter of all movie theaters will close in the aftermath of the pandemic. Because without ticket and concession revenue, that leaves a lot of unpaid rent. But of course, the total could be much worse. No word yet on whether the biggest movie theater chain in Canada, Cineplex, which among others in Montreal runs the Cineplex Cavendish across the street from the library, as well as the Cineplex Forum and the Cineplex Banque Scotia, will follow in the path of AMC. The latest word from Cineplex in early April was only that they would be closed indefinitely. I can, however, tell you that Cineplex is at least making home delivery of snacks you know, all of the essentials like uh, popcorn and nachos, which can be brought straight to your door. But of course, um, you can't do this by phone. You would have to do it through the internet. It's pretty simple. Just go to the website cineplex.com and you'll see at the top of that page um, some pretty easy to follow information on how to go about ordering Cineplex snacks. Uh, now, in other areas of theatrical exhibition, some have suggested that because of the pandemic, we may see a possible resurgence in the popularity of drive-in movie theaters. And while I think that may be possible, at least at a marginal level, I don't think it's viable as a, anything like a long-term solution, especially in Canada, where the seasonal window is really only a few short summer months. But it does sound like a great idea personally and something I very much enjoyed as a child. But another issue is that there are very few drive-in theaters still in existence. Now, what does come next theatrically? Um, whatever it might be, I think it's unlikely to be exactly what existed just a few months ago which is the idea that multiple studios release multiple films on a regular basis on approximately 45,000 movie screens across North America, and that approximately 90 days after that, those same movies then become available for home viewing, either on DVD, Blu-ray, or through streaming media. I don't think that model is going to survive, at least not exactly in that form. 
I think what we are going to see is many fewer movie theaters in the future, with those surviving largely becoming both the venues for the biggest of Hollywood films, as well as the smallest of art film fare for movie buffs and cineasts, who will continue to populate film festivals and specialty cinemas like the Cinémathèque Québécoise and the Cinéma du Parc, both in Montreal. But with more and more mid-range films, really the very great massive movies, going directly to streaming services, connect it to your television, tablet, smartphone, or computer screen, and bypassing movie theaters altogether. But movie theaters will survive only in a much smaller number. Now, let's return for a few moments to the question of when those that do survive might reopen, and when audiences might be expected to return to theaters and feel safe in doing so. Now, this is a major point. The pandemic is not all going to end at the same time for everyone everywhere in the world. At which point all the doors to all the remaining movie theaters in Canada and the United States reopen at the same time. That's just not going to happen. For example, in China and areas like Hong Kong and Singapore, movie theaters reopened briefly and then closed again in many regions because of the fear of new infections. So Hollywood will have little incentive to roll out its most important movies with um, major markets like New York still largely in lockdown and not yet ready to reopen until at least the fall. Densely populated places like New York or Los Angeles, for that matter, are going to need more time than, say, less populated areas such as Montana or Oklahoma. And there's no way Hollywood will release big movies to Montana before New York City. That's just not going to happen, if only through fear of video piracy. So even if movie theaters do reopen in some places this summer, including here in Montreal, which I think is unlikely, what are they going to play? They won't have any new movies, certainly none of the big Hollywood blockbusters, even if a few are still scheduled for release this summer. And I'm thinking here of Disney's live-action movie Milan, which is probably the biggest, most anticipated film of the year, still scheduled for July 24th release, while another anticipated billion-dollar movie, Wonder Woman 1984, is still set for August 14th, both already having been postponed. But these summer release dates are wildly optimistic, and almost certainly placeholders for an uncertain release sometime after the summer. But what's also equally true is that their studios are holding on to these summer dates because the summer season is the most profitable for Hollywood, marking more than 40% of its annual revenue. And so releasing their biggest movies later than that will likely mean less profit. So basically, in this sense, I think these studios are really, really hoping for a miracle. A summer miracle. Then consider the following, that even when movie theaters in the U.S. and Canada are finally able to reopen, in whatever their number or location, 
guidelines will likely stipulate a strictly limited seating capacity for reasons of social distancing. Those measures, while crucial to ensure safety, at least until there is a vaccine, will then automatically limit the number of tickets that can be sold for any given movie. So that, too, is a problem for generating revenue. For all these reasons, if studios are going to err, I think they're going to err on the side of caution and wait as long as possible before releasing their biggest films to theaters. Or failing that because they deem the wait just too long, send their biggest movies straight to streaming services, but in doing so, perhaps inadvertently providing a knockout blow to many movie theaters. But not all of them, I think. Movie theaters will survive, even if in a much reduced number. Whether serving a niche market of cinephiles or the largest of crowds for the latest superhero blockbuster, this is why I think they will always exist. Going to the movies is part of our collective DNA. Doing so evokes a sense of community within us. We need that. Movies and the theaters we watch them in bring us together, almost like a religious experience. And we can never afford to let go of that, not if we can help it. So I'm certain movie theaters will make a comeback someday, however modest, once movie fans feel confident and safe venturing back into public spaces. We simply don't know when that day will arrive. But it will arrive. It will. Stay safe. Stay healthy, everyone. This has been Stephen Tomlinson, inviting you to join me again on Friday with Lockdown Viewing for movie, TV, and streaming recommendations here on the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcast Service. Until then, bye-bye and happy viewing. Talk to you soon. The following is brought to you by Recreation CSL and is an excerpt from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess, presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts. Come on along and listen to the lullaby of Broadway, the hip hooray and the
And you will know I love 
Huge fan of Carol King. Ah, uh, how about we do a little Judy Garland? That's always fun. I love me some trolley song. With my high starch collar and my high top shoes and my hair piled high upon my head, I went to lose a jolly hour on the trolley and I lost my heart instead. With his light brown derby and his bright green tie, he was quite the handsomest of men. I started to yen, so I counted to ten, then I counted to ten again. I just hate it when I start to yen.
So mazel tov to you two. I think it's a beautiful initiative. So thank you for doing that and sharing your talents with the community. I'm as corny as Kansas in August. I'm as normal as blueberry pie. No more smart little girl with no heart. I have found a wonderful guy. I am in a conventional dealer with a conventional star in my eye. And you will know there's a lump in my throat when I speak of this wonderful and as gay as a daisy in May, a cliche coming true. I'm romantic and bright as a moon happy night pouring a light on the dew. I'm as corny as Kansas in August, I as a flag on the 4th of July. If you'll excuse an expression I use, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love.
from Cinderella because it's too fun. Anne Harada was in the last Broadway revival and she absolutely was so funny in the show. Oh my god, I love her. A lovely night, a lovely night, a finer night you know you'll never see. You meet your prince, a charming prince, as charming as a prince will ever be. The stars in a hazy heaven tremble above you, while he is whispering, darling, I love you. You say goodbye, away you fly, but on your lips you leave a kiss. All your life you'll dream of this. It is June, June, Joan. June is a busting out all over, all over the middle and the hill. Buds are busting out of bushes and the rumpin' river pushes every little wheel and wheels beside a mill. June is a busting out all over, the feeling is getting so intense that the young Virginia creepers have been hugging the bird jeepers out of all the morning glories on the That concludes this segment of Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts and brought to you by the Parks and Recreation Department of Coast St. Luke. Well, that is today's episode of the Coat St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you're listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.